More than a hundred years ago, Thomas Edison said he invented the light bulb. Alexander Graham Bell said he invented the telephone. But nobody is taking any credit for inventing, nor do we have any idea who invented the thing that has changed our culture and our world more than any other. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about industrialism, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. We are now boarding rows 30 to 40. Rows 30 to 40 through both doors 888. It's going to be a long time before we go to conferences again at the drop of a hat, but I'd like to invite you to an online conference, not one with speakers who are simply talking at a camera, but one that features you. The Real Skills Conference is back. You can find out the details at realskillsconference.com. It's two hours. It takes place around the world, and it's by and for you. It's about real skills. Some people call them soft skills, the stuff that truly matters when we seek to make change happen. It's about interaction, small group breakouts, and transformation. We've done it twice before, and it works. Check out realskillsconference.com for all the details. This podcast is a little bit of a rant, and it includes a word salad, words that have real meanings that are all related to one another that often start with the letter C, and each one of which is involved in the idea of industrialism. Some of those words, capitalism, cheaper, coercion, cotton, conspiracy, caste, cattle, kleptocracy, which doesn't actually start with C, computers, and constraints. Industrialism is an invisible force, but it is one that has shaped our vocabulary, our culture, the way we live our lives, what we expect, the idea of surplus, and everything in between. Industry craves productivity because cheaper wins, but cheaper productivity comes from cheaper labor with fewer protections. Industry demands that everyone in the system feels obligated to go against their morals, because productivity is, in many cases, a race to the bottom. So when I'm talking about industrialism, what I mean is a process, a process of people who used to live like wild animals, walking through the forest, hunting and gathering, transformed into communities, into cultures, into people who make things. But once people started making things, there was a race, and the race was to make them cheaper because competition forced people to make them cheaper. As Kevin Kelly has written about technology, one way to think about industry is that it's its own species, that industry lives next to us and uses us, humans, to get what it wants. And what industry wants is a perfect system of making stuff as cheap as possible. And it is willing to change the culture and to change us to get that. It is a system, a system in which people's short-term needs are met in exchange for feeding the engine of industry. So let's consider an example from a while ago. Cotton. Cotton is an industrial activity. 
People wanted clothes made out of cotton. Clothes made out of cotton, in addition to being comfortable, were stylish, and clothes made out of cotton could be offered at a low price. But before the cotton gin, the machine that harvests cotton, was invented by Eli Whitney, cotton enabled the peculiar institution, as Kenneth Stamp has written. There was an alignment for several centuries between the natural environment and industry that demanded cheap labor as cheap as possible. And the desire for free labor, totally free, fueled the abhorrent and immoral industrial industry of slavery, which was culturally sanctioned permanent coercion. What it meant was that industry could get what it needed, labor, at no marginal cost. But slavery required caste. It required treating people not like people, seeing them as other. It was such a shameful activity. It required separation, laws against intermarriage, and then Jim Crow after the Civil War, and thus dehumanization. That what happened was that the people who were working in industry suspended their humanity in order to feed the system. And one reason is that they believed that if they didn't do it, someone else would feed the system more cheaply than they could. Or in our current day, factory farming, the industrialized activity of growing enough food, it led to everything becoming cattle, even if you call it kale. No longer animals or plants living in cooperation with nature, but apart from it, something to be processed as cheaply as possible. None of this is idealized capitalism. Adam Smith didn't approve of any of this because capitalism is about freedom, as in free markets, and choice, and yes, markets. And markets are listening instruments. Markets exist to figure out what people want and to prioritize what they get. Freedom is the fuel for dignity. In truly free markets, slavery would be impossible. People would have the privilege, no, the right to charge for their labor, and they would have choices to make about their labor. Now, we're talking about industrialization, which involves none of these things. Industrialism is its own master, and it is about power, power over people and markets and systems and the race to the bottom. It created surplus and prizes along the way, which is why good people permitted it to run through our culture. But industry, the relentless race to create something ever cheaper and to turn it out regardless of the cost to the environment or the people who touch it, is at the heart of how we look at the world. Industry seeks monopoly because monopoly is the best way to gain power, to gain momentum, and to get more money to pay back the banks that fueled the race to build industrialism in the first place. And monopoly is a conspiracy. There are few genuine monopolies around us, but mostly there's conspiracies. These are oligopolies, groups of corporations and individuals working together to create less and less choice, and thus more insulation from the market and more monopoly. 
They are the result of benign cooperation, as we talked about in a previous episode, interoperability, turning toxic. We call something a conspiracy when people or organizations are cooperating in a way that hurts others. Conspiracies that do damage, they're not secret and they're not imaginary. Secret conspiracies are really unlikely because people are very bad at working together and they are very bad at working persistently and consistently in secret. No, real conspiracies are right here, right in plain sight. They are what happens when we swap regulators between industry and the ones that are regulating them. It's what happens when price signaling or price fixing goes on. It's what happens when there's regimes of institutional, international tax evasion. But mostly, it's the signaling of culture. It's what happens when industry starts making it normal to line things up simply in the name of productivity. What we're talking about here are oligopolies that seek to act like monopolies to maximize their return on their industrial investment, giving people less choice, creating short-term incentives, avoiding the long-term thinking that leads to a better environment. Short-term thinking, if I don't do it, somebody else will. The idea that lower taxes are always a good idea. The idea that government can't do anything right. This was intentional brainwashing on the part of think tanks and others, part of a conspiracy to help us, us being all of us, us being the culture, embrace industrialism in and of itself. The very idea that industrialism, not free markets, not choice, not dignity, not freedom, but industrialism would relentlessly march us toward progress. Machines changed everything about industrialism because machines are tireless and they don't complain and they don't bring the baggage of morality with them. Beyond that, machines can be constantly improved. When a machine is running well, we can copy why it's running well and transport it around the world, improve it, duplicate it, and do it again. Machines can have their productivity tweaked. Machines open the door to returning humans to having their lives back. But machines also hastened the race to monopoly. Why is that? Because machines, A, cost more and more money to build and maintain. They create insulation for the people who do have the machines. As Adam Smith and Karl Marx both pointed out, owning a pin-making machine is way better than being a pin-maker. And if we increase the gulf between machine owners and people who don't own a machine, we create more and more oligopolies. We give those oligopolies power and money. They use that power and money to create public conspiracies and those public conspiracies are designed to insulate them from competition at the very same time that they insulate their profits and take away the power of markets. But now, we're at a threshold. We're at a threshold because some of those machines are becoming computers. And computers can go either way because computers create the network effect. And the network effect, as we've talked about on previous episodes, is insanely powerful. It is one of the most powerful inventions of my lifetime. The network effect means that successful leaders can become even more powerful because they can achieve lock-in. 
that what we have here is if an organization can come up with a network effect, they create more profit, which leads to more coercion and more conspiracy because they can put in place systems, politicians, ideas, and most of all, more network effects to ensure ever more lock-in. But at the same time, computers, thanks to interoperability, have the chance to create a shot at true capitalism again, the capitalism that's based on boundaries, a lack of coercion, fewer conspiracies, longer-term thinking, and more competition, competition that works with markets, not against them. So when we think about the horror and the shamefulness of caste, the legacy of hundreds of years of industrialism, when we think about people who should have choice being coerced instead, when we think about the very visible conspiracies designed to elevate and to permanently entrench industry, we need to realize that the culture, the one we live in, the one that is all around us, was fueled by industry. Industry has created all of the surplus around us. Indoor plumbing, healthcare, food for billions of people. Industry has had extraordinary effects and side effects on our culture. But industry demands boundaries. Left to its own devices, it will cycle relentlessly toward monopoly and oligopoly. And it will do what it can to create lock-in, to ensure that we don't get what we want, but that we serve industry. And so we, the citizens, the people who work in, alongside, and yes, at the top of industry, need to figure out what's the point. Does culture exist to fuel industry? Or is industry's job to make it so we can get back to capitalism and thus have culture the way we want it to be, a culture based on dignity and choice and markets, and awareness, and prioritization, and the long term. So Cory Doctorow continues to inspire writing brilliantly about what would it mean to break up tech, to break up monopoly, to use interoperability, the magic of the internet, the idea of connection, to get us back to where we'd like to be, which is a system that isn't based on a race to the bottom that once we have better long-term insight into what the cost of everything really is, we could make better decisions. But to do that first, like the goldfish who doesn't know that they're swimming in the water, we have to realize that there even is water, that all around us, the repercussions of industry persist. Some people are trapped in it. Some people are still enjoying it. But it is a choice. We are at a crossroads. And as we create the next generation of artificial intelligence, as we create more and more ways to connect people to one another, it's important that we have a conversation about what is important. How do we know if we're doing a good job? Is the goal to enrich Wall Street and nothing but Wall Street? Is that why we're here? Is the purpose of culture to enable industry? Or is the purpose of industry to enable culture. So this has been a short rant, but it's worth a summary. Industrialism is not the same as capitalism. Industrialism is the repeated process of getting what you got, but cheaper and faster. Eventually, it requires coercion. 
It requires pushing people to do things they don't want to do. It requires the people running industry to not take responsibility for what they're doing, because instead it's the industry itself that is determining what's happening next. Capitalism is about discovering market needs and filling them, and it works best when people take responsibility for what they do. We have an opportunity to create boundaries, boundaries for industry, boundaries for capitalism. Those boundaries enable it to work. We can make boundaries that benefit all of us and still get the benefits of technology, still get the benefits of supply chain and reliability, and yes, civilization. In fact, if we don't create the boundaries, we won't get any of those things. If these ideas resonate with you, here's four books that have had a big impact on me. You can get details at akimbo.link. Just check out the show notes. The first is a new book, Cast, by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Isabel Wilkerson. It's an extraordinary piece of work, and I hope that everyone reads it. The research she did, the clarity with which she makes her points, it's just off the charts. Second is The Master Switch by Tim Wu. Third is Ending Surveillance Capitalism by Cory Doctorow. And fourth is The Classic What Technology Wants by Kevin Kelly. Even if there's something in one or more of these books that you disagree with, these are important books well worth your time. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Thanks for listening. As you know... I love getting questions from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. We got a few questions about voting and then one about authenticity. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Larry in Salt Lake City. Just listened to your podcast on ranked choice voting. Very interesting, great ideas. Some concerns. Um, number one, how would we have a digital voting system that was hacker-proof, either by foreign or domestic villains uh, who would want to alter things? Uh, two, how would we keep all of that data out of the hands of government? Uh, big trust issues with NSA, CIA, FBI, Justice Department. They'll want a back door so they can get all this information. Um there's something physically secure about showing up physically as opposed to digitally. Um, thoughts about security of a digital system and the use of the data. Thanks for all your great work. 
Thank you, Larry. And I appreciate the intent behind the question. I think that villains are interesting to think about because they generally don't do work the way they do in the movies. That the villainy has to do with gerrymandering. It has to do with keeping people from voting. It has to do with how we allocate in-person voting places, etc. That the wholesale theft of voting records isn't nearly as big a threat as creating a cultural misunderstanding about the security of elections. That if we can persuade people that their votes don't matter, that the elections are insecure, it is much less likely that people will vote, or even worse, accept the results of votes. And the villains that you talk about have a lot to gain by creating an environment where people choose not to accept the results of elections. Creating security is different than creating security theater. And the security theater of in-person voting has been around our entire lives. Where I grew up, that oversized notebook held together with posts and screws, and they look you up, and then they spin it around, and you sign it, and then you go to this machine that makes a satisfying click-clack sound. You have no clue if the right person is looking at the results the right way, or if some villain is stealing your data. And in terms of government agencies snooping, I have to tell you, it's way too late for that. The government already knows that you submitted this question. The government already has cameras everywhere that you go. The government has no trouble tracking anybody who has a cell phone. Again, it's the difference between security theater and security. People think that they're flying under the radar, but they just think that actual security demands a level of transparency and inspection on the part of people who want to see how it's working. That is much easier to do with intent in a digital space than it is to do in the real world because the digital space is auditable. Just read a post about South Korea hotels that are filled to the top with illicit cameras that people in South Korea are placing in hotel rooms just to spy on people and blackmail them. Really hard to inspect for that wholesale. On the other hand, if we had the open source code that people like Bruce Schneier have been arguing for that's inspectable, where we can build an audit trail in the digital domain, not only is it possible to achieve more security, but then we can build a level of security theater around it. So I am not dismissing the threats to our democracy from all sides. I'm simply saying that chronic systemic problems combined with a cultural dynamic that is spiraling in the wrong direction are way worse than the hypothetical fears of some villain or some secret government agency grabbing our voting data. They've got all the data that they need. Hey, Seth. This is Reynolds from Amsterdam. In your podcast on voting reforms, you said there's resistance to changing the status quo. I was surprised, therefore, when you brought up ranked choice voting as a solution. It's more complicated to gather and calculate ranked choice votes using today's systems. Uh, the Center for Election Science therefore recommends approval voting, which is much less friction. I'm curious, do you value the idea of people stating their personal ranked preferences here? 
and uh, would love to hear your thoughts. I really appreciate you shining a light on important problems to make the world a better place. Thanks for this question, Remolt. And you are right. Approval voting is significantly simpler and lets people make decisions in a more binary way. I am indifferent as to which one we end up using. My argument is that there's a lot of opportunity to do things better. And just because we haven't been doing things better is no reason not to explore them. Hey, Seth. This is Ian from Fort Collins, Colorado. I'm a graphic designer and a musician. I've been listening to all of your podcasts since the beginning, and I always try to relate them back to my own art with songwriting. Um, I feel like the hardest thing to do is to be truly authentic when you're writing songs. I think the greatest artists are the ones who are able to create a thousand plus true fans because they wear it on their sleeve. They are able to translate who they are so clearly. I struggle with that sometimes, and I was wondering if you have any formulas or hints or recommendations on ways to ensure that your authenticity is being translated or that you're not just ripping off somebody else's idea and attributing it to yourself. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Ian. This is something that comes up again and again, and it's something that I cover a great deal in my new book, The Practice, which comes out in November at the end of 2020. Here's the deal. I think authenticity is dramatically overrated. Let's start with an oncologist. You don't need a cancer therapist who has survived cancer. It is possible for an obstetrician to do a great job delivering a baby, even if that person has never had a baby on their own. And if you're ever going to read a novel, that novel is completely made up. That's why it's a novel. And if we think about the great pop songs of my lifetime, maybe some of them actually happen to some people, but not all of them, not all the time. And that person who's standing on stage singing, well, maybe, just maybe, they're in the mood that that song describes. But most of the time, they're not. That's because they're a professional. What it means to be a professional is that you are showing up for other people. If starting from a base of authenticity makes it easier for you to choose the empathy to talk and act and work for other people, then by all means, please do. But once we decide to do this work, what we have to acknowledge is that what we are seeking is authentic connection with the person who hears it or the person we are operating on, or the person who needs us to do a service for them, not how we authentically feel in the moment. That fiction is another word for fake, but a novel can change us, because even though the author was making stuff up, if he or she has done a good job, it works because it works on us. And that is the opportunity we each have. Sure, start with the kernel of authenticity if you wish, but realize that you are here for other people, not just for yourself. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere. 
you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.